Thank you all for being here. I'm Dean Reuter, the Vice President and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. I'm very pleased to welcome you all here today on, on behalf of all three co-sponsoring organizations. We are here today, of course, to discuss the book Roots of Liberty, Unlocking the Federalist Papers, which is very aptly and descriptively titled. Uh, Roots of Liberty is a primer for the great set of essays, The Federalist Papers, written by James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay during the debates over the ratification of the Constitution. Now, after the Philadelphia Convention of 1787, ratification of that newly proposed Constitution was far from a certainty, and a national conversation took place over ratification led by the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers' essays are themselves an exposition on the U.S. Constitution and were meant to allay the fears and the concerns of the anti-Federalists, those opposed to ratification of the new Constitution. So the Federalist Papers stand as an explanation and a defense of the proposed Constitution, and they provide a window into the thinking behind the Constitution. Roots of Liberty, the book, is a helpful modern-day attempt to make the Federalist Papers more accessible to those interested in our form of government and structure of government and the original meaning of the Constitution and the way our government was intended to function. My job as moderator is really just to get out of the way and let us get to the substance of the program. So I'm going to very briefly introduce the panelists in the order they're going to speak. We're going to hear first from Tim Donner. He is the founder and president of One Generation Away. Mr. Donner is going to speak for some 10 to 12 minutes giving an overview of the project that led to the publication of the book. We're going to then hear in turn from each of our panelists for about 15 minutes each. Dr. Roger Pilon is the Vice President for Legal Affairs of the Cato Institute. He's the main organizer of today's event, uh, which we're happy to co-sponsor again, and one of the contributors to the book. And he's going to lead off the panel. And he'll be followed by Christopher Donessa, he is the former chief counsel of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and also one of the contributors to the book. I understand he's still on the Hill, but he's here in his personal capacity today. Uh, so we're very pleased to welcome him here today. And he will be followed by Claire McCaffrey Griffin. She's a principal at CGC right here in Washington, DC. After those remarks, we're going to be turning to you for questions from the audience. So please do be ready with your questions. We'll have microphones handheld that we'll be passing around at that point. Uh, we'd ask you to wait for the microphone to reach you before you begin your question, to make it a question rather than a statement, uh, to address it to uh, one or more people on the panel, uh, and also to identify yourself and the organization uh, that you're affiliated with. And with that, why don't we begin. Mr. Donner, the floor is yours. Thank you, Dean, and thank you for the role that the invaluable role that the Federalist Society played in this project. You know, we can't even begin to catalog all the things that have been said about the U.S. Constitution over the years, but a few, a few observations stand out as particularly profound in defining the complex and fragile nature of the freedom described or prescribed in the Constitution, like the poet John Chiardi, who said, the Constitution gives every American the inalienable right to make a damn fool of himself. Or when Will Rogers observed that the Constitution protects aliens, drunks, and U.S. senators. Or when Henry Kissinger said, the illegal we do immediately 
the unconstitutional takes a little longer. The Constitution has been a subject of great debate over the last several years, and the good news and the bad news are intertwined. At the same time that the Constitution has been breached with impunity as much, if not more, than any time in American history, there's been a simultaneous rebirth of interest in it. But there's no debating that it's been weakened by the left. The progressive movement, which feels not liberated, but constrained by it. It prescribes individual liberty. They want collective action. And they've largely had their way for some time, haven't they? As we increasingly transform from a constitutional republic to a European-style social democracy. And as we stand at this precipice of social democracy, here's the most important question of all. What about the rising generations of Gen Xers and millennials, the future leaders of America? Where do they stand on the Constitution? I want to talk with you a bit here about how we can teach rising generations of Americans a fresh appreciation and love of the Constitution. But here's what I want to impart to you. To teach our children well, the Constitution is not as important as the Federalist Papers. Constitution is not as important as the Federalist Papers. Now, contrary to the left's view that the Constitution was appropriate for a small agrarian nation, but not for an advanced industrial society, the Constitution is, in fact, timeless, evergreen, as we call it in the news business, because it's grounded in human nature. And while political circumstances change, Human nature does not. We're just as self-centered and greedy and fallen now as we were in 1787. And unlike the progressives, we don't believe in the perfectibility of man. And we certainly have the facts to prove it, don't we? But the Constitution is only the byproduct of the principles embedded in it. Even more important are those principles themselves, principles based on the most realistic judgment of human nature ever written, except perhaps for Machiavelli, and he didn't have to concoct a new form of government. And that's where the Federalist Papers come in. In recent years, constitutionalists, conservatives, libertarians have often, and understandably so, attempted to use the Constitution as a weapon to bludgeon the left, waving it like a bloody shirt to prohibit them from doing stupid stuff. But too often, failing to focus attention on the principles animating it. And after more than 100 years of the progressive movement culminating in the leftist ruling class of the last several years, America's founding is either not being taught or is being corrupted in so many, most of our schools. We can no longer count on our children and grandchildren being taught that America has actually been on the right side of history, a nation that sacrificed so much in treasure and talent to save the world from tyranny at least three times in the 20th century alone, while at the same time facing head-on our own imperfections. So we can and should vigorously promote a genuine understanding of the Constitution in our schools 
But much like how it's even more important to understand the core principles embedded in biblical verses than to simply memorize the verses themselves, it's even more important for students to understand the principles embedded in the Constitution so that they can read the Constitution with a fresh understanding of why it is what it is, directly from the pens of three of the most significant founding fathers, including the father of the Constitution, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay. Now, what are these principles? Well, most of you know the quote from Federalist 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. How powerful is the word necessary? Not desirable, not a force for good, not something to be celebrated or expanded. No, government is simply necessary, sort of like police, which exists not because they're desirable, but because they're necessary, because men are not, never have been, and never will be angels. Thus, the basis for separation of powers and checks and balances in federalism, horizontal and vertical divisions of power and authority. In Federalist 45, Madison writes, we've heard of the impious doctrine in the old world that the people were made for kings, not kings for the people. Is the same doctrine to be revived in the new in another shape that the solid happiness of the people is to be sacrificed to the views of political institutions of a different form. Thus, the very basis for we the people, and for Madison's famous statement in that same paper that the powers delegated to the federal government are few and defined, and those to remain closer to the people and in the states are numerous and indefinite. And thus, the 18 specific and enumerated powers granted to the legislative branch in Article I and those similarly granted to the executive and judicial branches. In Federalist 10, Madison warns of the dangers of factions, minority or majority, factions driven by, in his words, some common impulse of passion or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. Thus, the creation of a simple yet elaborate system designed to make major laws require very broad consensus to pass. These are just some of the many principles given voice in the Federalist Papers. And that's because, as Dean mentioned, there was an urgency to their writings. They had to pull out all the heavy artillery, advance their very best arguments for this constitutional republic in depth because the original purpose of the papers was to try and sell the Constitution to the skeptical people of New York when it was entirely unclear whether the Constitution could actually ultimately be ratified. The Federalist Papers were described by Thomas Jefferson in the 18th century as the best commentary on the principles of government which was ever written. And in the 20th century, by, among others, distinguished historian Clinton Rossiter, who described it as the most important work in political science that has ever been written. But there's always been a problem with the Federalist Papers. There are 85 separate papers, loosely organized, written in arcane 
18th century language. So these papers have effectively been inaccessible to boomers and millennials and Gen Xers. So here's what one generation away my organization has done to fix those problems we hope forever. We joined with scholars from the Federalist Society, including Roger Plant, Cato, and Chris Danessa, who will both be up here shortly, to produce a series of essays, Roots of Liberty Unlocking the Federalist Papers, that organizes the papers by topic. We created videos to match the topics, and then we joined forces with the best curriculum specialist we could find, Claire Griffin, co-editor of Roots of Liberty, and she will also speak to you shortly about how this has gone over in the classroom. She helped us put together what we humbly believe is a brilliant discussion guide providing teachers, particularly high school teachers, with a comprehensive and flexible tool designed for the 21st century, offering clear guidance, great flexibility, and perhaps most importantly, how these principles apply directly to the issues of today. We've undertaken this ambitious project because we believe we don't have to face plant young people into the Constitution. We instead should be teaching them the principles behind it, believing you don't have to exaggerate or proselytize or make stuff up to convince impressionable young minds of the merits of our founding principles. All we have to do is expose them to these principles in an honest and coherent fashion, and we believe they'll see the light, and their love for the Constitution will follow. This project got a huge boost when Cal Thomas, one of the nation's most widely syndicated columnists, devoted his July 4th column to it. I'll let Cal Thomas's words serve as testimony to Roots of Liberty. Here's some of what he wrote. Roots of Liberty will serve as a needed reminder of what makes America unique in the world and how it can be quickly destroyed if sufficient attention is not paid to our founding principles. What should attract young people to Roots of Liberty is that the editors have updated the 18th century language using instead paraphrases and modern words that will resonate in contemporary ears without harming its original meaning. Roots of Liberty will remind Americans of where our country came from and where it's headed if we don't embrace the brilliance of those who bequeathed it to us. This is an ecumenical project, if you will, designed to draw in those who are either unconvinced or have never spent the time to deeply consider the brilliance of our founding fathers and founding principles. Folks, we have tried to restore constitutional principles, individual liberty, limited government, and free markets through the ballot box. And let's be honest. The political process has failed us. So of utmost importance right now, right now, is to train the minds of those who will hold power in the decades ahead. We at OneGen undertook this project because we believe Roots of Liberty is the best contribution we can make to restoring liberty step by step, inch by inch, one young mind at a time. We face what Ronald Reagan warned us about. 
and from which my organization, One Generation Away, derives its name. That freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same, or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. We created Roots of Liberty so that future generations of American leaders can do more than just read and hear stories about the blessings of freedom and liberty, but actually understand, experience, and treasure those blessings in their own lives and thus fight for liberty's revival in America. And uh, before I turn things back over to Dean, I'd be remiss if I didn't recognize one more person, the man who tirelessly helped steer the ship on this project, kept it on the rails both patiently and aggressively with both his legal background and his love of liberty, the co-editor of Roots of Liberty, OneGen's policy director, Scott Cosenza. And where is he? There he is in the back. Scott, for being both a, a, a great friend and a worthy colleague, thank you. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, all of you. And thank you, most of all, for coming and listening today. Thank you very much. Well, let me join Dean in welcoming you all to the Cato Institute and to this forum. Let me remind you that uh, the book is available for sale outside, and do uh, take advantage of that. Uh, in fact, let me just begin by saying a little bit about the book. Um, it is um, a collection of essays by various scholars, uh, starting out after the introduction uh, with an essay on foreign aggression uh, and the bulwark against it uh, by our own uh, Scott uh, Danessa here, uh, who, who you will hear from next. And then we turn to unlimited government with four essays on that, various aspects of that subject. Then a discussion of how the Federalist Papers uh, discuss how the um, uh, issue of corruption is to be addressed uh, by the uh, constitutional checks and balances. And then finally, um, three essays on freedom, uh, for political activity, for economic activity, and for religious activity. And so I encourage you all to get a copy of the book so you can read these essays. Let me uh, open up, however, with um, the current context. And I allude to nothing less than the College Board's Advanced Placement U.S. History course detailed 98-page document called its framework, which has recently come out and has generated a storm of controversy. Some of you may have seen some of that controversy. Uh, the uh, framework um, rethinks the whole issue of American history. It seeks to emulate, as one would expect being an AP course, college courses in U.S. history. Of course, right in there is the problem. And uh, it does so 
by uh, steeping itself in identity politics, as we've come to think of that idea. It's an unvarnished uh, and uh, repeated discussion of the nation's sins while downplaying its virtues. Um, it downplays especially the founding period and the theory of the founding period. Indeed, the Declaration of Independence and its principles are reduced to a single sentence. The framework, and I quote here, um, discusses it as follows. The colonists' belief in the superiority of Republican self-government based on the natural rights of the people found its clearest American expression in Thomas Paine's common sense and in the Declaration of Independence. That is the sole reference to the Declaration. The framework ignores the, the philosophical underpinnings of the Declaration uh, and the willingness of the signers to pledge their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. Uh, Benjamin Franklin is nowhere mentioned. James Madison, the author of the Constitution, is nowhere mentioned. George Washington is mentioned only with reference to his farewell address. Thus does it continue with the um, discussion of US history. All right, let me now, with that as the springboard, um, thank One Generation Away for this book, because it is an antidote to that approach to US history. And thank also the Federalist Society for its role in orchestrating this entire project. My essay, which I'm going to turn to now, deals with the doctrine of enumerated powers. But in light of the short shrift that something like the uh, framework that I just spoke about gives to the Declaration of Independence, I begin not with the Constitution, but with the Declaration, because it's there that the founders 11 years early, the framers 11 years earlier, when they were founders, set forth their philosophy of government. And in order to understand the Constitution, it's absolutely crucial to understand the philosophy that stands behind it. And you get that from the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration draws upon the natural rights strain of the natural law tradition with its roots in antiquity. And in doing so, it begins with what's called state of nature theory. It asks what our rights are vis-a-vis -vis each other if there were no government and we lived in a state of nature without that institution. Because its main objective in state of nature theory is to show how a legitimate government with legitimate powers might arise. And it does that, as I said, by dealing with philosophical considerations of what our rights would be vis-a-vis -vis each other and our correlative obligations and responsibilities. And so we start with what is called methodological individualism. We start with the individual, not with the group. And in doing that, we turn to such authors as John Locke in the second treatise, who set forth the theory of rights, the theory of property, and the social contract theory. And that is traced by the Declaration 
in its seminal phrases that begin, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident truths are truths that are rooted in reason. And so when you do this analytical work, which I'm not going to be doing here in the short span that I have, what you come up with is with the idea that each of us has a right to be free, to plan and live his own life, all of which, as Locke said, is reducible to property, broadly understood as property in our lives, our liberties, and the property that we acquire legitimately in the world. There's your starting point for the theory of rights. And of course, we don't live in splendid isolation. On Black Acre or White Acre, we come together, and there are two morally relevant ways in which we do it, either voluntarily through promise or contract, or through force by committing torts or crimes. And so now we have the building blocks for the theory of rights. And the two basic rights, property, broadly understood, as I've just said, and contract. And that, when we flesh it all out, gives us a picture of what our rights and obligations are vis-a-vis -vis each other, and therefore what rights we have by way of coming together and creating government. And all of this is reduced very simply in the Declaration after that phrase that I just gave you, Jefferson says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there you have the premise of equality, defined by rights, rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the pursuit of happiness is done differently by different people because what makes you happy is not necessarily what makes me happy. And so each of us has a right to pursue happiness by his own subjective values as he works his way through life, provided he respects the equal rights of others to do the same. And there, in a nutshell, is the theory of rights that stands behind the Declaration and implicitly behind the Constitution. Only then did Jefferson turn to the question of government. And he did it in the phrase that begins that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So notice that government is twice limited by its ends to secure our rights and by its means which must be consented to. Now that is the vision that they took with them 11 years later when they drafted the Constitution. And you see it all over in the preamble, which begins, we the people for the purposes listed do ordain and establish this Constitution. So notice we're right back in state of nature theory. All power rests with the people. They create the government. They give the government whatever powers they give it. That is the source of the legitimacy of the government's powers provided the powers they give it are rooted in reason, are rooted in the powers that each of us would have in the state of nature to yield up to government in the original position. So it's on the basis of both consent and reason that the Constitution enjoys what legitimacy it has. Now we turn to the doctrine of enumerated powers, which was what my chapter in the book deals with. And you see this in the very first sentence of the Constitution, all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. By implication, not all power was herein granted. You look at Article 1, Section 8, and you will see 
the 18 powers that are enumerated are the only powers that Congress has authority to exercise by way of passing legislation. And then you turn to the 10th Amendment, the last documentary evidence in the founding period, and you see this doctrine spelled out expressly. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, the Constitution establishes a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. Delegated by the people, enumerated in the document, and limited by virtue of that delegation and enumeration. And so what the doctrine of enumerated powers gives you is the origin, the legitimacy, and the limits of the federal government's powers. And then you look at that document and you see how limited those powers were. But of course, we've had 200 and more years of history since then. And as Madison said, the principal author of the document, the powers of the new government would be few and defined, as Tim quoted. No one today believes that the powers of the federal government are lim limited, few, and defined. Indeed, we live essentially in a Leviathan today. And so the question arises, how did we get from there to where we are today? And of course, the answer is, as Tim mentioned, the ideas of the progressive era the progressives fundamentally rejected the founding vision. The founders saw government as a necessary evil. The progressives saw it as an engine of good, an instrument to solve all kinds of social problems. The only thing that stood athwart that agenda was, of course, the Constitution. During the New Deal, when the progressives shifted their focus from state political activism to federal political activism, and the court found one project after another that the Roosevelt administration had sought to enact unconstitutional. In 1937, after the landslide election of 36, Roosevelt unveiled his infamous court packing threat, his plan to pack the court with six new members so that he could have his way with the Constitution. Not even Congress would go along with that. Nevertheless, the court got the message. There was the famous switch in time that saved nine, and the court began rewriting the Constitution, in effect, without constitutional amendment. And that has given us, over the years since 1937-38, the modern regulatory and redistributive state. And so what I do in this essay is go back to the Federalist Papers, in particular, Federalist 41, 42, and 44, where you find Madison discussing the three fonts of power that were of concern at the time, that were of concern especially to the Anti-Federalists, and that have been used after the 1937 Constitutional Revolution to create Leviathan, namely the General Welfare Clause, in 41, Federalist 41, the Commerce Clause in Federalist 42, and the Necessary and Proper Clause in Federalist 44. You look at the discussion in those numbers of the Federalist paper, 
and you will see what those clauses were meant to do. The General Welfare Clause was just a heading under which the 17 other enumerated powers were meant to be subsumed. It wasn't an independent power in Congress to tax and spend for anything that satisfied Congress's transient ideas about what served the general welfare. Nothing could be further from the truth. There was great debate about that during the first Congress with Hamilton on one side, Madison, Jefferson, and virtually everybody else on the other side. The Commerce Clause was not meant to enable Congress to regulate anything and everything under the sun for any reason at all. It was written to ensure the free flow of goods and services among the states to make commerce regular as against the kinds of impediments that were imposed by the states under the Articles of Confederation, the erection of tariffs and other protectionist measures for the benefit of local merchants and manufacturers and the, uh, to the, to the, uh, at the expense of out-of-state merchants and manufacturers, leading to the breakdown of the free flow and commerce among the states. And finally, the Necessary and Proper Clause was designed to afford Congress the means not to accomplish anything, but only to accomplish those 16 prior, excuse me, 17 prior enumerated ends. And Madison discusses all of this in exquisite detail in the Federalist Papers. And I summarize them in the chapter in the book and show how it is that if we acquaint ourselves with those ideas of the Federalist Papers, we will understand the legitimacy of American government, which is precisely what is being challenged by this new way of thinking that has come out from this new framework that I mentioned at the outset. And this, as Tim said, is precisely what we have to do in order to revive this notion and to ensure that it carries on. Because, as President Reagan said, we are only one generation away from the loss of liberty. There were two major uh, concerns that brought the founders from the uh, uh, Articles of Confederation to the Constitution. One was the breakdown of trade among the states. I've just addressed that. The other was the absence of a strong enough central government to address foreign affairs. And that's what you're going to be hearing from next, from Chris, uh, who is going to talk about the problem that arose from the fact that we were surrounded on three sides by powers greater than our own. And under the Articles of Confederation, we needed a stronger national government to address that. So with that, Chris, it's all yours. Well, thank you. And first, thank you all for being here. This is really quite an impressive crowd for a, a late afternoon in August when the temperature outside is very hot. Uh, to hear about the Federalist Papers. So um, I appreciate you all being here and, and, and your interest in this uh, uh, important topic and, and this important project. And uh, I would particularly also like to thank uh, Roger and Dean for hosting and moderating this event and also for their involvement 
uh, in the project as well. And everybody who has been associated with this project, it really has been a pleasure uh, to be part of it. We actually started this quite a while ago. Um, and so it's, it's quite satisfying for me uh, to see this come to, to not only fruition at this point, but to, to uh, become something, I think, bigger than all of us anticipated uh, when we started the project in the beginning. So we're glad to be here and, and glad to be talking about this. Uh, before I start talking about foreign affairs, I also would like to acknowledge my co-author, uh, Jamil Jaffer, uh, who is also my former colleague uh, on the Hill. And uh, Jamil and I entered into this uh, as a project while, while we were working together on uh, national security issues uh, for the House of Representatives. And uh, he actually could not be here with us today because he is still working on those issues uh, in a different place. Uh, he's over with the Senate now. Uh, but, but he was unable to be here today because of official business. But I did want to recognize Jamil. And I should point out, um, it, in the interest of avoiding confusion, I think on, on, in everyone's interest, uh, there, are, there are two gentlemen uh, who are named Jamil Jaffer who both work in national security. And one of them works with uh, the ACLU. And one of them has worked in the executive branch on the Hill. And my co-author is the Jamil Jaffer uh, who has worked in the executive branch and, and on Capitol Hill. Um, and I think both of them probably would appreciate that clarification. So. Uh, just, just to be clear as to, to who I'm talking about. So, uh, uh, but I really do, did want to thank Jamil for uh, bringing me into this and, and, and working on it as well. Um, I'd like to touch very briefly on, on three issues that relate to uh, foreign affairs as they, um, as they became an issue uh, in consideration of uh, the ratification of the Constitution and also with respect to the Federalist Papers. Uh, I'd like to uh, set the stage uh, for uh, for the situation that the young United States found itself in uh, at the time that the the the, the ratification debate uh, was in full force, uh, that largely is material that I had in the chapter, but I thought it might be of interest uh, just to to give you all those of you who have not read the book a flavor for the things that we talk about in the book um, and a, a sense of the issues and, and ideas that we're trying to convey there. Uh, I'd like to very briefly talk about um, how the 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 founders and the Constitutional Convention ultimately disposed of those issues and, and, and therefore remedied the problems, some of which uh, probably are fairly apparent from the, the perspective of 2014 and some of which may not be apparent from the perspective of 2014. Uh, and the third thing I'd like to talk about briefly is not in the book, but um, in looking this over and in thinking about uh, talking to you all today, one thing that, that has become very clear in reviewing our work is the continuing relevance, uh, obviously, not only of the Constitution, um, as we look at increasingly difficult threats in an increasingly complicated world in 2014. But I, I was also really very struck by the, 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 the continued relevance and, and prescience, really, of the arguments that, that were made uh, for a central government by uh, the, the great authors of the Federalist Papers, um, because the ideas really uh, not only obviously continue to be relevant, but um, really speak with some force to some of the issues that we're looking at so much later, even though um, I think everybody would be in agreement that most of the issues that we're considering today in the foreign affairs arena are things that uh, the founders never could possibly have, have uh, imagined or envisioned, um, including some of the problems that we're dealing with overseas, which are increasingly complicated today, um, and you know things like electronic surveillance and, and intelligence collection, which obviously are, are things that they would not um, have foreseen. But, but it, it really is fascinating when you look back at, at the arguments that were made, um, how they continue to echo. And so I just want to touch briefly on that as well. So uh, I'll just very quickly walk through all three of those uh, issues. So again, the first, the first question, and this is really what we covered in the bulk of, of the material in the chapter, is 
why and how were uh, foreign affairs were so important to the constitutional debate. Um, uh, I think you have a sense of the, the great breadth of issues that were addressed in the papers and that were under consideration by the, the, the citizens of the United States and by the founders at the time. Um, but as we looked at it again and again, one of the things that seemed to be mo the mo one of the most compelling arguments uh, put forward in the Federalist Papers for the ratification of the Constitution was the need to have uh, stronger authorities and, and clearer authorities, um, both of the central government and of the United States as a whole, to deal with foreign threats. Um, and I think everybody probably can agree on that at an abstract level right now, but to give you a sense of why that really was an issue and a really pressing practical issue at the time that, that ultimately turned out to be so persuasive. Um, and this is, this is very hard to imagine in, in, in 2014 because we're used to having a very uh, extremely large and extremely unified and extremely uh, powerful government in the world, but in, in, in 1787, um, the, the United States was really quite the opposite. So what, the, the way that Hamilton framed the issue in Federalist 15, he said that the United States had reached, quote, almost the last stage of national humiliation um, prior to the ratification of the Constitution. Uh, and and he, he talked about a number of different problems, but just to give you an example of some of them, the, the, the federal government as a whole um, had, had no power or authority whatsoever to speak overseas. Um, and, and so you know, earlier today, uh, uh, I had a meeting with some folks from the State Department, and there, you know, there was no State Department. That there was there were no uh, there was no centralized uh, uh, means of preparing the foreign policy or, or or articulating the foreign policy overseas of the United States. There there there, there was no mechanism to do that. Um, the, the, the 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 papers specifically um, uh, noted that, that our ambassadors overseas were ignored. Uh, because they had no power, they had no no authority. They they it was unclear who they were speaking for and on what terms and in in what ways uh, the policies that they were articulating were were going to be um, you know were going to be brought to bear on whoever it was that they were dealing with. Uh, so Hamilton also pointed out we have neither troops nor treasury nor government. Um, the central government did not have legal authorities as a lawyer. The, the central government did not have legal authorities to to raise money. Didn't have legal authority to raise armies. Um, and uh, importantly, and I'll talk about this a little bit more, uh, another issue that uh, I think is hard to imagine today is that the central government uh, also had to deal with the competing agendas uh, of the former colonies, uh, which were not necessarily coordinated. And again, it wasn't really clear who was speaking for the country. Um, and different agendas had, had sort of different um, impacts overseas. Uh, so these were very real practical problems. And, 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 and these problems have to be considered not just in the abstract uh, as, as legal issues or policy issues. They have to be considered against the, the, the face of the threats that the country was facing um, at the time. So uh, one thing that you'll see a lot of discussion about in the Federalist Papers is um, the, the fact that the, uh, the, the fledgling United States was essentially uh, occupied, or it would be considered to be occupied today, uh, by uh, two, two uh, threatening foreign powers. Uh, so there, the, the, the British, there was British dominion on one side, Spanish colonies on the other side. Um, and the, the, uh, the, the, the government also at the time perceived Native Americans uh, as an additional internal threat that needed to be um, considered, dealt with, and, and, and managed um, in a consolidated by, way by a central government. So um, th th these weren't abstract problems. So th this was not an issue of um, uh, you know, politicians or, or lawyers or um, learned men of the day 
um, uh, having a, a theoretical debate. It was a very real practical problem of how to deal with these threats that were uh, not only surrounding the, the, the former colonies, but really threatening the, the existence and continuation of the United States as a nation. So what Hamilton argued, and, and this was in Federalist 24, Hamilton argued that um, the country needed standing armies, or what he called a strong and effective land-based fighting force. Um, to, to, to help consolidate and, and provide some impetus for the, 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 the United States government to protect itself and, and have some means by which to uh, effectuate its policy goals. Um, he argued in particular the United States needed to maintain garrisons on the frontiers. Uh, and this actually was more of a practical issue than you might imagine. Uh, and I think everybody sort of has the notion of the frontier garrison. Um, and uh, it's not until you read the papers that you realize that uh, at the time, these frontier garrisons actually uh, sometimes were not manned. Sometimes they were manned by um, militia members from the various states who would rotate in or out, which um, it appears from the papers, I can't say why, but it appears from the papers that it really was considered something of an onerous duty uh, by the militias because they were having to rotate in, they were having to rotate out, they were away from their families, uh, there, there was no uh, central force. So uh, th this really was, quote unquote, disagreeable duty. Uh, Hamilton also, also argued in Federalist 24 that the United States government needed a navy and dockyards and arsenals, um, not simply to protect the nation itself, but to facilitate commerce, which is uh, an important link to other uh, ideas that you see throughout the debate and throughout the Federalist Papers, um, because protecting commerce at the time required protecting the sea lanes. And um, uh, that, that, again, may seem like something that's obvious, um, but I don't think we think about that as much in the 21st century, because the, 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 um, the context of those problems were much, much different, obviously, at the time of the framing. So um, if you think about the very basic things, that the government did not have at its disposal. There was a very compelling argument, or at least the, 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 the drafters of the Federalist Papers were trying to make a very compelling argument um, as to why uh, the Constitution needed to be ratified and, the, and, and we needed a stronger central government uh, to, to deal with those problems. So I'll, I'll also talk briefly about how that debate was resolved. I think this is a little easier uh, for everybody to, to, to understand and focus on because uh, it, they actually resolved it in a way um, that resonates very much in the sorts of things that we do still talk about today uh, and are still relevant to um, the United States that we know in 2014. Um, obviously, the, what the, the Constitution has ratified gave clear authorities to the federal government to declare war, uh, raise an army and a navy, uh, regulate commerce with foreign nations, uh, call on state militias, and provide for the common defense. Um, and uh, Roger had mentioned the necessary and proper clause earlier, and, and uh, one, one, one implication of the necessary and proper clause, and I can say this having used it myself, um, because in the House we're required to actually now write statements that cite the constitutional authorities for bills that you move. So for example, an intelligence authorization bill um, would require a statement, and there's nothing in the Constitution, um, probably for obvious reasons, about running a, a, a you know, intelligence uh, intelligence programs and activities in the federal government, um, but they, they do effectuate the necessary and proper clause, and actually they, they do effectuate um, the other clauses that relate to armies and navies in the Constitution uh, in a very legitimate way. And so it, it actually was intriguing filling out the paperwork that you need to fill out to move one of these bills, because um, I can tell you from personal experience that um, the, the requirement to have the constitutional authority statement actually does force uh, members and staff to think in a very directed way about uh, what are the actual authorities in the Constitution and why are they still relevant today. And I can, I can tell you now they are thought about and highly relevant. Um, 
And the other thing that, that may not be as obvious that was done in, in the Constitution to resolve uh, the issues that we're seeing, I alluded to it a little bit earlier with respect to the states. Um, and, and I think we all have grown up for many generations in this country um, with the fruits of this debate, with a, with a central government that um, has largely been, and certainly compared to what was in existence at the time of the Federalist Papers, a, a, a very strong government with respect to foreign affairs. But again, this was actually not not the case at the time. Um, and, and so the, the provision that states would be uh, essentially restricted or forbidden from engaging in unilateral negotiations with foreign countries or from keeping their own troops in a time of peace actually was highly important. And the framers spent a lot of time talking about this. And, and the, 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 the Federalist paper, Papers author spent a great deal of time talking about this in the papers um, because the debate's been resolved now. But at the time, it was, it was hard for people to understand because they were focused on states um, and the interest of states. Um, and, and in Federalist 3, John Jay actually spent a great deal of time explaining why it was important not only to empower the central government, but to disempower uh, the individual state governments. And so I'll, I'll just I'll read you a, a, a quick um, explanation by Jay, uh, whose argument was essentially that, that the, the, the ratification of the Constitution would better organize the central government to uh, not only repel attacks, but also because it was less likely to provoke attacks. And Jay's argument was, um, not only fewer just causes of war will be given to the national government, but it will also be more in their power to accommodate and settle them amicably. They will be more temperate and cool, and in that respect, as well as in others, will be more in capacity to act advisedly than the offending state. The pride of states, as well as of men, naturally disposes them to justify all their actions and opposes their acknowledging, correcting, or repairing their errors and offenses. The national government, in such cases, will not be affected by this pride. Well, it's open to question whether or not the latter sentence is true. But certainly, um, just again, to give you a sense of how those conflicts really posed um, uh, practical problems, the Constitution was very successful in addressing that issue um, and in promoting uniformity uh, in, in foreign affairs and the ability to uh, implement policy with respect to foreign affairs in the new U.S. government. So um, that's a, that'll give you a sense of what the debate looked like in 1781, how it was resolved in 1781. Uh, I'd also like to just close again by briefly uh, talking about why these issues and why the arguments that the, that, that, that the drafters of the Federalist Papers um, raise in the papers are still relevant today. And I'll give you two quotes, and I'll work, off, work briefly off of those quotes. Jay wrote in Federalist number three, among the many objects to which a wise and free people find it necessary to, to direct their attention, that of providing for their safety seems to be the first. Um, and Jay further noted that the just causes of war arise either from violation of treaties uh, or direct violence um, on a country. Um, and, and the continued relevance of, of that observation, even in two 2014 and even this month uh, and this year, ought to be apparent. Um, and and it, it's, it's um, perhaps a little frightening that it continues to be so relevant, um, even in the face of so much success uh, on the part of the United States in, um, in, in articulating its policy overseas uh, and in defending itself overseas. Um, and I think that only points to how much of a truism um, the, the observations uh, in the papers are. Uh, Hamilton in Federalist 24 also uh, admonished the American nation not to, not to be too sanguine in considering ourselves out entirely of the reach of danger, um, which again is an observation that, 
seems to have continued relevance and continued truth. Um, so uh, those quotes will, will just give you a flavor that shows the, the wisdom and foresight of the framers. The, as I mentioned, the threats today are substantially more complex and dangerous than I think any of them could possibly have imagined at the time. Um, and, and even so, we continue to struggle today, um, probably more so than at any time in our recent history, um, certainly probably since World War II, as others might, others might disagree, but probably since World War II, um, with fundamental questions about the degree of power that has been entrusted to the federal government. Um, uh, so just as we talk about why the papers are relevant in, in in uh, empowering a federal government. Today, we talk about whether that maybe that's too much power, um, too little power, um, how it's used, how it's controlled, um, how it's checked. Um, all of those continue to be highly relevant issues. Um, and without taking sides on any of them, I think everybody probably can agree that, that, that there's tremendous importance in, in the ideas that are behind it. Um, these issues and debates are healthy and necessary. Um, but given the debate, and, and in closing, uh, at the end of the day, what all of this does is it continues to emphasize for us how important um, the, the, the thoughts and the, and the logic and the, uh, the wisdom uh, of the authors of the Federalist Papers are not only to us today, but also are important as core values to, to pass along um, in schools and, and really to anybody who's, who's interested in reading them and, and participating in this project. Um, the Constitution ultimately was seen, and this is from Federalist 14, as a bulwark against foreign danger, as the conservator of peace among ourselves, as the guardian of our commerce and other foreign interests. Um, and uh, I would submit that that's more true today than, 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 or as true today as it ever has been, um, which is why this project is important and why we thank you all for being here. Good afternoon, and thank you for coming today. Last night at 9 o'clock, my husband and I arrived at Dulles Airport, returning from a wonderful two-week vacation in the Scottish Highlands. The weather was soft. The whiskey was sweet. The landscapes were stunning. And the people, well, the people were delightful. But very much preoccupied with the upcoming referendum on Scottish independence. As you probably know, on September 18th, the Scots will vote whether to remain part of the United Kingdom or whether, as they would say, gang it alone. It's an exciting, exhilarating, and challenging time to be a Scotsman or Scotswoman. Which currency will they use? How will they defend themselves? Which alliances, alliances could they, should they join? Is an old nation about to be transformed? A new nation about to be born? What does the future hold? Well, these questions are not all that different from the questions asked by the founding generation in the years following the American Revolution. The Constitutional Convention of 1787 resolved many issues about the structure of our new nation. But the skeletal structure and outlines created that summer in Philadelphia were fleshed out in the series of periodical articles the, that we are discussing today. Between October 1787 and May 1788, yes, just less than a year, Publius wrote 85 newspaper articles 
to persuade delegates to the New York State Ratification Convention to vote in favor of the new Constitution. The Federalist Papers were an attempt by Jay, Hamilton, and Madison, and yes, mostly Madison, to work out the meaning in practice of what they had developed in theory the previous summer. My colleagues on today's panel have spoken about the historical and constitutional significance of the Federalist Papers, and they've also addressed several major themes contained in the Roots of Liberty. So I'd like to focus my comments on four C's, all related to the classroom. Consensus, challenges, concepts, and classroom application. First of all, consensus. Now, we started with bad news. Roger told you about the AP curriculum, which, yes, does not, not only does it not mention Madison, it also does not mention the Federalist Papers. But let me balance that with what I think is some good news. I think, despite this new proposed curriculum, which is very controversial, that there is a remarkable consensus in the educational community, and I take that to be a consensus in the national community, about the value of studying the Federalist Papers. And let me offer three examples. First of all, the Federalist Papers are specifically mentioned in almost all educational standards in almost all states, in the American history and American government courses at the high school level. If you look at Virginia's standards of learning, they're there. If you look at the Maryland standards, they are there. So the Federalist Papers are required curriculum. Now, what the teacher is able to do, that's another matter. But there is a value and a priority placed on these documents. Secondly, the Federalist Papers are only one of a small, small handful of documents that are specifically mentioned in the Common Core English Language Arts and Social Studies standards. Now, now is not the time nor the place to debate either the political or the pedagogical uh, significance and value of the Common Core standards. But let me say that I think in one form or another, they are here to stay, and I think that has something positive for those of us who love the Federalist Papers. Because in addition to specifically mentioning the Federalist Papers, students are asked to, quote, analyze in detail how a complex primary source is structured, unquote. And that's exactly what the Roots of Liberty require. And lastly, upcoming changes in the SAT, which is also run by the College Board, but this is more positive, will emphasize founding documents and analytical skills. Each exam will now include a passage from a founding document, and I'm sure a Federalist paper is going to make its way in there, as well as requiring students to, quote, support answers with evidence and write an essay analyzing a source. Well, what could be more perf a more perfect source for analysis than one of the Federalist Papers? Now, this general, I take that back, this consensus about the value of teaching the Federalist Papers doesn't necessarily translate into expertise in teaching the Federalist Papers. And that takes us to our next C, the challenges of teaching the Federalist Papers. 
First of all, there's the challenge of the writing itself. Uh, the grammar and syntax and sentence structure of the 18th century is so very different from 21st century writing. Uh, Madison never met a semicolon that he didn't like. Uh, and his, his plethora of independent and dependent clauses, uh, the reiter reiterative nature of the arguments, the complexity of the reasoning, the abstractness of the topics, I mean, these are all issues that the constitutional principles don't lend themselves to summary in a Twitter feed. But we can make them accessible. There's also the challenge, in addition to the language, the challenge of pedagogy. What approach does a teacher who wants to teach these documents take? Well, one approach is chronological. You could begin at 1 and work your way through 85. But heck, after 14, you're still talking about the need to create a more perfect union. You haven't gone to anything yet. So realistically, at the high school level and even at the college level, a solely chronological approach is not going to work. Um, you could take your top five. That's probably the most common approach. Uh, I'm often asked by teachers, Claire, what's your top five? I'd be happy to share with you in the Q&A. But frankly, that's probably not the best approach. I may say these are the top five. You may say these are the other five. We may be missing something completely. So the best approach then, I think, and I want to thank Tim for having this vision, is the third C, which is the conceptual approach. The essays in The Roots of Liberty take a conceptual or thematic approach to the study of the Federalist Papers. There's no need to ask which Federalist paper to study. Instead, readers focus on which concepts to study. Federalism, liberty, separation of powers are all contained in the scholarly essays. Now, let me emphasize that the roots of liberty is not a Federalist Papers and Contemporary Language kind of book. While I appreciate the motivation of this type of approach, and several versions like this have been published, um, I think that rewriting the Federalist Papers in 21st century language does a major disservice to the authors, to their readers, and to the significant principles articulated in these essays. Instead, in the scholarly analysis of these concepts, Roger, Christopher, and the other authors have included extended passages from the original source and then explained and elaborated on their meaning. The essays make reference to 39 of the Federalist Papers. That's, that's almost half. And because I knew it was going to be important for this project to show its connection to the original text of the documents, Early on, I suggested to Scott that wherever we had even a short quote, as well as an extended quote from the original document, that we print that in red to draw people's attention to the core uh, content. Scott then pointed out to me that printing something in both black text and red text would start getting very expensive. So he persuaded me, and I was persuaded, to use italics. So when you take a look at the book and flip through, you will see extensive, extended passages taken directly from the Federalist Papers. It's not a diluted version by any means. And also, contrary to some ill-informed or perhaps misguided comments, um, the essays in the Roots of Liberty are not written at a 10th grade level. 
In fact, one of the joys of working on this project, in addition to collaborating with Tim and Scott and Lisa, was the fact that I did not have to edit essays written by constitutional scholars to match the reading level of high school sophomores. The essays are written at a college level, and they're appropriate for advanced high school students, undergraduates, as well as a general audience. Now, this book is definitely a standalone good read. But classroom teachers need more than that. And so we created a companion study guide. Now, this is designed for the classroom, but I think it's appropriate for any student of the Constitution. And there are many of you in here today. And I'd like to give you just a brief overview of what we include in each of the units. First of all, as Tim referenced, we have short videos two or three minutes, just enough to set the stage. The text of the video is a paraphrase of the text of the essay, so it's a nice introduction to what the students are going to be looking at. The next component is analyze the source. We provide a short two or three sentence excerpt from one of the key relevant Federalist papers. And then we provide seven to eight questions to help the students unpack or deconstruct what the meaning is. And again, referencing Madison, he can pack a lot into just a few sentences. Uh, in addition, we provide an answer key for the teachers to help them become more familiar and comfortable with these documents. At that point, students explore the essay. In other words, they read the essay written by one of our constitutional scholars. Again, we provide eight to 10 questions. Some of them are recall questions. Some of them are make connection kinds of questions. Some of them are open-ended, what do you think about kinds of questions. And where possible, we provide answers. We also have a connect to current issues. And this is something that Tim referenced, the uh, applicability and relevance of the principles articulated then to our issues today. Let me just briefly give you an example. Uh, in the section on the doctrine of enumerated powers, and that was the essay written by Roger, uh, Connected Current Issues says this, research one of the current controversial issues listed below to determine to what degree, if any, the federal government is appropriately exercising the powers delegated to it by the people through the Constitution the Affordable Health Care Act, national security issues, immigration reform proposals, reduction of the national debt, same-sex marriage. We think those issues are going to be around for a while. And if those go away, there are going to be other issues related. We also provide multiple assessment options for the teacher to use with um, his or her students. And then every single unit has a learn more section where we direct the student slash teacher to uh, additional resources, uh, including the wonderful resource created by my friends at Ashland University. This is teachingamericanhistory.org, a wonderful website that has all sorts of good resources, which are a wonderful complement uh, to the Roots of Liberty. Also, my friends at the Bill of Rights Institute have created great materials that are a nice complement to, to this particular study guide. Uh, we also provide some additional teaching strategies and options for teachers. I'll be happy to go into those uh, in the Q&A. But the point I'd like to make now is that just as political theory is one thing and political practice is another, so too with pedagogy. 
If it works on paper, but doesn't work in the classroom, what good is it? Well, the good news about the roots of liberty, this approach works in the classroom. Teachers in public and private schools, both large and small around the country, have used these materials with great success. And I'd like to share with you the comments of one of those educators. Cheryl Cook Callio teaches at a large, multi-ethnic, comprehensive, traditional high school in the San Francisco Bay Area. Cheryl is a James Madison Fellow, a mentor civics teacher, and has received numerous awards for her teaching excellence. And I don't think Cheryl would mind me sharing with you that the views her students have about the role of government probably differ substantially from the views of many in this room. But here's what Cheryl had to say about the Roots of Liberty. I have used this book with my advanced placement class and my college prep. I thought it was well edited and very accessible. It provides the basis for a rich civil discussion. It is easily understood as a standalone, but even better when accompanied by instruction and time to discuss the ideas presented and what those ideas meant during the founding period. The initial understanding frequently sent my students to the full document for closer inspection. This book helps students to understand the brilliance of James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay, and that the struggle for good government continues. The struggle for good government does continue, but there is hope. As our Scottish founder, John Witherspoon said, when the manners of the nation are pure and internal principles maintain their vigor, the attempts of the most powerful enemies to oppress them are commonly baffled and disappointed. So I'd like to conclude by thanking each of you for what you do each day in both your personal and your professional lives to ensure that these key constitutional principles examined in the Federalist Papers and elucidated by our scholars truly are roots of liberty that they remain firmly planted in the minds and hearts of the American people. Thank you very much. Let's move right to questions if we could. I know there are a couple microphones uh, somewhere. Do we have microphones? We do. Um, why don't we go right here first? And then if, if you have a question, leave your hand up until we'll get to a second question. Uh, go there next, but go right ahead, sir. And if you would identify yourself and your affiliation and to whom you're addressing the question. Sure. Uh, my name is Bill Stevens, and I teach uh, several history courses at the Seed Public Charter School here in DC. And um, I guess my question is mostly for Ms. Griffin, but I suppose anybody. I, I, I think what I do is the top five approach. And um, I love the idea of the thematic approach, super excited about it. Um, and I, I'm excited to get the kind of ancillary packet as well. Um, I wonder if there is a, a similar approach, granted not as thorough, um, maybe of some anti-federalist writings as well, only because uh, high school students, teenagers, or I suppose anybody, the idea of the debate is what's engaging. 
So I, I don't know if there's any thoughts about a similar approach maybe. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, when I first met with Tim to talk about this project, uh, we didn't get very far before I said, well, we really should do something similar on the anti-federal. So the idea is in the ether. But of course, the Federalist Papers address the anti-federalists throughout and oftentimes give their arguments so you do get a flavor of what the anti-federalists were saying simply from reading the Federalist Papers. We're going to go over here next, but if you have a question, put your hand up. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, yes, Pat Span, just representing myself. Um, I think for, for anyone on, uh, on the panel, but uh, I guess especially for um, those, Mr. Donessa with the international relations. But I, you know, what what can be done short of impeachment to to rein in, you know, the growth of the imperial presidency, if anything. I'm trying to think about what the what the what the what the um, authors of the Federalist Papers would say about that, and and since I I mainly dedicated my chapter to foreign affairs, uh, I, I might defer to others who've talked about separation of powers issues. Um, I, I believe that one thing that they would clearly have said, though, is that. Um, Moderating passion is a core is a core goal and a core function of the Constitution. Um, so, to the extent that um, um, an executive exceeding his authority is a representative of that passion, to some extent, it's within the framework of the document. And the question, I guess, maybe what I could say a little bit better from my more recent practical experience is, it, it's not necessarily as much of an issue of either the framework of the Constitution. Um, or the doctrine that surrounded it in the papers as much as um, how the people who are, one, in the body politic and two, in the government, choose to um, respond to that and use the structures um, both for citizens and for the government that, uh, that are provided. Um, and I think, again, this is something we're seeing a lot of today, but I don't know if somebody else has a better view of, of how, the, how the, the authors would have seen it. Well, Roger, you mentioned in your essay, Federalist 44, which, uh, which says that it's, it's the job of the executive and the judiciary to expound upon the law and, and hopefully rein those folks, rein the legislature in. Um, uh, and in the last instance, it's the, it's the duty of the people to do so. Absolutely. But with respect to the issue of impeachment, the framers were quite keen on the idea of impeachment. But we haven't been able to bring ourselves to impeach even a president who perjures himself, to allude to recent history. So it has sort of fallen by the way, unfortunately. Next question, then we'll take a question over here. Yes, I'm Sam Wright. I'm retired Navy JAG, and I'm the director of the Service Members Law Center. My question is for Mr. Donner and Mr. Danessa. I share your concern about liberty being only one generation away from extinction. But uh, one big concern of mine is about physical national security of the nation, and how can we be reassured on that when only 1% of 17 to 24-year-olds are both interested in and eligible for military service. Who's going to defend us in the next generation? <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I've talked a lot. I, I appreciate you uh, letting me answer such a simple question like that. 
Um, I think the most important thing in answer to your question is to is for rising generations to develop a love for liberty and for the Constitution and for this country enough that they will be compelled by their own conscience to participate in the defense of this country. You won't defend that which you don't love and that which you do not understand. And what we're trying to do with Roots of Liberty is to get rising generations to understand exactly the extent of the sacrifice and the extent of the deeply held principles and the sense of how revolutionary all of this was. It's called, a lot of this is now called conservative, but the American Revolution was anything but conservative. And I think we just need a, a baseline, endow future generations with a love for not only where we are, but where we've come from and what we stand for. Yes, sir. My name is Steve Hankin, and I note that the word republic is used at least once in the Constitution. And I, I wondered if any of you could help me out as to what the founders meant by the word republic, and does the Federalist Papers ever attempt to define it? I'm quite confident that nowhere in the Constitution do they define the word republic. And my own uh, investigation of the word has gotten me all kinds of different definitions. So I would like to know ex what it meant at the time of the founders. What did the founders think a republic was? Well, they guaranteed a republican form of government to the states. And you're absolutely right. There are different definitions of that term. It generally stands for a form of participatory government through representatives uh, and often through a federal system with a central government and state and local governments. Uh, all of those go into the definition of republic, but it does not enjoy anything like a univocal definition. Now we're here next. Uh, my name is Theodore Gebhardt. Uh, this is a question for Roger Pallon. Um, under the doctrine of limited enumerated powers, uh, did the federal government prior to 1868 have any authority to limit encroachment by the states on citizens' natural and common law rights? And uh, what do the Federalist Papers say about that, if anything? <clears throat> the Federalist Papers dance around the issue because, of course, the great problem was slavery. They understood that it was inconsistent with their founding principles, and so you don't even see the word in the Constitution. It is obliquely alluded to um, by the three-fifths rule, uh, by the... Um, um, uh, by the ending of the importation of persons after 20 years and so forth. And so they kicked the can down the road, and you're absolutely right, it was until 1868 and the passage of the 14th Amendment that we finally had for the first time federal remedies against state violations of our rights through the three fonts 
of liberty under Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Hi, uh, Joe McTighe from a group called CAPE, which is the Council for American Private Education, the world of religious and independent elementary and secondary schools. I wanted to pick up on the point connecting the Constitution with the Declaration and natural law and natural rights theory, rights with which we are endowed by our creator. What are the implications of that theory in a society that is increasingly secular, where the notion of creator is either not recognized or creator is regarded as irrelevant? And I think related to that is, this, this, the, I guess, the parallel between the notion that the Constitution is not fixed and permanent, but is rather something that is changeable and fluid and something we construct with the notion that human nature itself is not fixed and permanent, but is fluid and changeable and something we construct. Well, to answer that question in less than a semester, <laughs> um, and at the risk of irreverence, there are some who think that their creator are their mother and their father. Um, and there is something to be said for that. But that is, of course, not what uh, Jefferson was alluding to. At the same time, look at the language that Jefferson chose. It was about as abstract as it could possibly be. Obviously, it didn't refer to any specific religion. It didn't refer to even religion as such. It was a general statement that was consistent with much of the thought at that point in the Enlightenment uh, and following the Age of Reason, and therefore um, alluded to this general idea of, uh, of rights being derived, as I said in my opening remarks, derived in the sense of being justified by principles of reason, amenable to all people, regardless of their particular religious beliefs or their having any beliefs whatsoever, that they would be amenable to various cultures. I mean, after all, the natural law tradition, at least since the Stoics, was rooted in the idea that these are principles that are common to mankind as such at all times, all places. And uh, that's why, uh, that, is, that is the way in an increasingly secular society one has to think about it so that uh, it, you don't get caught up in battles that we see going on in other places in the world uh, where it's endless sectarian uh, uh, strife. Uh, we've been very fortunate in this country uh, in having at our founding a good number of religions. So we had to make peace with that right from the start. Uh, we never identified ourselves, at least explicitly in our founding documents, as being a Christian nation or uh, even a religious nation, except through the oath. No. But, uh, and, and so we've sort of um, kept that as abstract as possible, and it served us very well. Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, yeah, it's on. Uh, 
Perfect, perfect. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Cliff Peicher. I'm from Georgetown Law. I'm a student there, and this is for um, anybody who wants to take a crack at it. Um, the Federalist Papers have a kind of interesting argument where they say, well, one of the benefits of having a strong federal government is that you'll have the best and the brightest go work in the federal government. And um, and they also address... Yeah. Don't all laugh at once. <laughs> and uh, the second comment they make is say, oh, how, do you, you know, how are you going to avoid the federal government just consuming all the power as it's wont to do? And Hamilton says a kind of funny thing, which is that, well, you know, there will come a point where if the federal government's better at it, then maybe it's best that it assumes this power. And so there's a kind of dynamic between the two where he's saying, oh, we're assuming that the best and the brightest are going to go to the federal government as opposed to the state government, not as opposed to anything they want to do with their lives. So they go to the federal government and power is going to naturally trend toward people who are better able to manage it. And so you see a natural trending of power towards the federal government at the expense of the states. And now that we've kind of gotten to the point where, you know, federal government uh, dominates most aspects of life and is increasingly, you know, Common Core, a good example, increasingly dominating areas that were traditionally, uh, you know, the last bulwarks of state power. Um, how do you avoid that issue where uh, Hamilton's point that you kind of want the federal government doing it because, you know, they're real bright and state legislatures, as you know, as much as people don't like Congress, people often wouldn't want the state legislatures running them either. And so if you're interested in separation of powers, how do you deal with that dilemma? I think they were concerned less with bright people than with virtuous people. Uh, Federalist 51 is the answer to your question. Uh, you pit power against power in order to check power. They understood that you take men as they are and laws as they might be, and you write laws and create institutions so that um, you have a balance of power, so to speak, where if one gets out of control, the other can check it. Uh, unfortunately, since the New Deal Constitutional Revolution, and the expansion of government, we've seen the breakdown of that with power increasingly, uh, first of all, in the legislative branch, with the demise of the doctrine of enumerated powers, Congress can regulate and redistribute virtually at will. Then you've got the problem of now Congress can no longer control what it's doing, and so you have the demise in 1943 of the non-delegation doctrine. So it's delegating ever more of its legislative power, which belongs to Congress. Remember the first sentence of the Constitution says, all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. It's now delegating ever more power to the executive branch agencies that it's creating, over 300 some agencies in this city today. And that's where the lawmaking, most of it, is taking place today. So you have the rise, the blossoming of the modern executive state. And so that's what we've come to. Essentially, the executive state is the most powerful. And as the question came up over here, how do you control the executive state where by phone and pen you can write legislation? That is the great problem. I will give you one glimmer of hope. There is a case coming before the Supreme Court this coming term dealing with Amtrak, where the delegation has gone from Congress not to one of these government agencies, but to a quasi-private agency, 
Amtrak to write the regulations relating to itself and its relationship to its competitors. That's what we've come to. Now, that case is coming before the Supreme Court, and it may be the first glimmer of hope about inroads on the doctrine, uh, of, on the non-delegation doctrine. So keep your eye on that case. It's a railroad case. We're technically out of time, but Roger tells me we can go a little over, so why don't we take a final question? Um, you, you had a question. Hi, I'm Leslie McMullen. I'm just here on my own. Um, on the issue of states' rights, I'm curious what you think about the authors of the Federalist Papers and what they would think about our current-day border situation, where most Americans don't seem to want a flood of illegal immigrants coming across our borders, yet our national centralized government that the Federalist authors were proposing, and you know, for good reason in many ways, isn't doing enough. So what did they think about the protections of the states in terms of security at their own borders? Because it, it's, it's a failure. <laughs> and, it, and they were so bright and so intuitive and had so much foresight. Did that come up in their conversations? To whomever on the panel wants to answer it. Uh. Well, they were, they were open, obviously, to immigration. In fact, they were encouraging it uh, because they had a as they saw it, a continent to fill. Uh, and you can be very much open to immigration uh, if you've got a limited government state. But if you've got a welfare state, which we have today, then there is always the potential of attracting the people who want to um, take advantage of the welfare state. Not that I'm saying that the empirical evidence suggests that that is in fact happening. That's a much mooted question itself. But obviously, in the modern world, we've reached the point where nations do have to concern themselves with security of their borders, if for no other reason than security. Now, the economic side of it is a very different issue. We certainly do want to encourage immigration of people who are going to contribute to this country. And indeed, so much of this country's uh, um, history is a history of immigrants who have come here, my wife, for example, and made contributions uh, uh, that uh, have made us the uh, country that we are today. Can I just add one thing, which Please. is that, um, and this is, this is basically what Chris was saying, is that the, perhaps the greatest justification for um, for the Constitution to replace the Articles of Confederation. And at the convention originally, the idea of the original Constitutional Convention was to, was to revise and strengthen the Articles of Confederation, but they couldn't be salvaged because of the inability uh, to form a central government that could serve as a bulwark against foreign aggression. And likewise, without a unified national government to set a policy on something like immigration. Imagine if each state had its own policy, if Arizona and Texas and California each had different policies on who could come across the border and who couldn't. So while we're dealing with it imperfectly and the founders couldn't have envisioned it, um, the form of government that we have and the central government setting the policy um, is an awful lot stronger than if we didn't have 
a federal government that was formed specifically uh, to be able to raise an army as well as to raise revenue. Well, thank you. Um, a reminder that the book is for sale out here in the, uh, uh, the lobby, and we have a reception planned uh, immediately following the panel, so we invite you all to, to join us in the reception. And please, before we do that, uh, this has been a terrific discussion. Join me in thanking the panel.